We come to our sermon text for today. John chapter 11, the raising of Lazarus, verses 38 to 44. Hear the word of God. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, your inspired word, your life-giving word. Father, we pray that you would sanctify us by this word. Your word is truth. And as you have promised, and so, Father, we wait and we listen with expectancy. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. One of... One of the great moments in film, and I may have mentioned this before, is from Pirates of the Caribbean, when Davy Jones, the squiddish Davy Jones, Captain Davy Jones, stands before those captured sailors and looks them in the eye and says, do you fear death? And they're shaking. And there's one they show who is holding on to a cross. He has a cross to hold on to. And he says to them, don't listen to him. Don't listen to him. And he gets his throat slit and he's thrown over. And we assume lands in the arms of his Savior. But the rest, they give their souls so that they will not die. Well, they end up sort of half dead, neither dead nor alive. And there you go. People don't think about death the way they once did. Back in the days when there was regular plague, disease, when you got it, you said, well, I I guess it's over. I have disease, crib death, half your children, famine, regular famines, once every 10 years or less, and war, war that wasn't way over there and and carried out from from a high altitude, war that was always passing through, and we won't go into details. COVID made many people more sensitive to death, in some cases quite fearful. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. 
your hope in the face of death. And you might say, well, thank you. I'll be sure to remember that and sort of tuck it away in your mind and then move on with the things you've planned. We're relatively insulated from death, even from old age. Modern life gives us health and extended life, and, and we believe those promises, and it's made impressive good on those promises. And even, even old age is tucked away into nursing homes. Uh, but maybe you've seen others die, uh, but it's, it's uncommon to make the connection between seeing others die and reflecting upon oneself. The death rate is the same as it has always been. But commitments to deeper spiritual seriousness rarely result from funeral attendance. People go, they pay their respects, and they go on with life as they've been leading it. Something like goldfish. When I was a graduate student, I lived with a guy who had a fish tank with a snake head in it. It's a particular kind of fish, the snake head, and it looks like a thick snake. And it will grow to the size of your fish tank, I'm told. And they eat goldfish. And, and we would drop the goldfish into the tank. And you know, goldfish are, whoop, I guess this is where we are now. And, and Snakehead knows exactly what's going on. And then, and then we're waiting for it. Whoosh! There goes a goldfish right? inside Snakehead. And the others are, whoop, because they have no foresight. And they have no imagination. They don't look at where their friend was and look at Snakehead and think, as he is now, I may be. Nope. And many people, I think, are like that. It's not as though in earlier centuries people were completely mindful of, of death and its seriousness. We know this from the scriptures, if nothing else. The rich man who had, who had a great harvest and his barns were filled, and he said, my barns are full. What will I do? I will, I will build bigger barns, and I will have wealth stored up for, for the foreseeable future. And the Lord says, you fool, your life will be required of you this day. It never crossed his mind that maybe his life would be required of him this day as it is with some people around him. And think of Ebenezer Scrooge. Okay, that's literature, but Dickens, a great writer, put it in his literature because he was plausible, right? Scrooge was not sobered by the death of his business partner, Jacob Marley, nor was anyone, were any of Scrooge's business associates sobered when Scrooge died? They just thought of their bellies. They went to his, they went to his, uh, his, his wake and said, but I must be fed or I stay home. One of the great lines in English literature. No awareness of, well, there he is, I may be. What am I doing to prepare for that? And yet when we do face the possibility or the certainty of death, many people fall to pieces. Again, we think of COVID. When, when death, we thought, was blowing through the streets, the empty streets, 
knocking at people's doors saying, come out, I want to play, right? Fell apart. Imagine you go into surgery, and the surgeon says, that's a routine procedure, an appendectomy, let's say. You'll be home by Wednesday. But you're all bubbling and bawling like you're being taken to the gallows. And this surgeon would say, you really don't trust me, do you? And some of us are like that. Safe in Jesus, the great physician. And he has a right in many cases to look us in the eye and say, don't you trust me? This great miracle pertains to the certainty and horror of death and the confidence Christ gives in our awareness of death and in the approach of death. John 11 records the greatest and last of the seven miracles his gospel records. Christ's miracles are not conveniences. They're not personal indulgences. As if, like at the wedding of Cana, uh, uh, somebody brings word to Jesus saying, well, we've run out of wine. And he says, oh, don't worry, I can fix that, and then fixes it and saves the day. No, that's not what it was about. Or, or as, as though here, as though here, well, he missed Lazarus, whom he loved. And, and, and so he, he, he restores Lazarus to life because of this untimely death. And then everyone's happy. I've got this. No, no. John calls these miracles signs and describes seven of them, starting with the wedding at Cana in John chapter 2. And this is the seventh of them. Signs or miracles are pictures of the gospel, pictures of Christ. The signs signify, right? They are, uh, they are not the real thing. The signs are not the real thing. They point to the real thing. And this one points to Jesus as the resurrection and the life. But the sign is useless if you cannot see it. Right? The, 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 the McDonald's sign, the, the, the stop sign, no good if you can't see the sign. But unlike the stop sign and the McDonald's sign, these signs need not only the eyes of the flesh, but also the eyes of the Spirit, your spirit, the eyes that grace gives you. In fact, faith is challenged by the eyes of the flesh, what the eyes of the flesh take in. The eyes of the flesh, in this case, take in the grave. There is the grave, and they've seen many graves before. I, did, I didn't attend a funeral until I was in graduate school. That's what a weird world I came out of. But, uh, but they see funerals all the time. And, and, and there's the grave. And, and inside the grave, they know, is a body that is decomposing. Lazarus seems irretrievably dead. Calvin, John Calvin says, there is nothing more contrary to life than decay and the stench of it. Isn't that true? Lazarus' condition is not only that life has departed from him, but that death is rampant. Death is rioting. Death is mocking life in hideous mimicry. 
If you could see the body, there would be the, 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 the look something like Lazarus, but a ghastly imitation of him. If you rolled away the stone, the clear testimony of your eyes and of your nose, and if you dared, your hands, would be, he's dead. He's gone. He's not coming back. Jesus uses the drama of this moment to strengthen their faith. By the stone, he sets their hearts on him. And by the prayer, he sets their minds on him. Look at the events surrounding the stone. Lazarus is already in the tomb, sealed by the stone. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and the stone lay against it. Lazarus is in there. Uh, He's dead. He didn't have to be. Jesus delayed, remember, delayed his coming. Lazarus is ill. We should go and see him. And, and then he, and it's, the text says he delays his departure by two days so that by the time he gets there, Lazarus has been dead, we're told here in the next verse, for four days. And people at this time believed that the body, sorry, the, the soul lingered for three days around the body. Now, this is not a biblical teaching. But it's what they believed. And knowing that this was in their heads, Jesus then delays coming until Lazarus has been dead for four days. So it's beyond question that Lazarus is indeed dead. And Jesus says, take the stone away. Verse 39, take the stone away. Why doesn't he move it by a miracle? He can do miracles. He's here doing a miracle. He's about to raise the dead. Why not move the stone? But miracles are not for convenience. Miracles are for communication. And here, if he moved the stone miraculously, it would distract from the next miracle. Um, What would be the next miracle? It would muffle the message. Saying, take away the stone, also asks them to act in faith. And that's the point here, to strengthen their faith, to emphasize the the importance of faith in the presence of the resurrection and the life. If you had just buried a friend or a relative, and then I said, it was murder, dig up the body. You would do so only if you had tremendous faith in my Sherlock Holmesian reasoning. So here, you move the stone only if you expect Jesus to act. They don't say, Lord, we all miss him. Just grieve with us. No, they obey him. So, the command focuses their hearts on Jesus and raises their expectations of what he can do. They are ready now to see Christ in the miracle. And the prayer, next. The prayer is not just a prayer to the Father, although it is a prayer from Jesus to the Father. It is also for their faith's sake. Jesus prays 
Timotheus out loud. He doesn't, he doesn't go aside in private to pray silently. He stands there and prays out loud, teaching the crowd by doing so. Uh, verse 41, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. And I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When Lazarus rises, Jesus wants them to know two things about him. One, that he is heard, and two, that he is sent. What does it mean that God hears him? Jesus does not say, thank you that you will hear me, and so Lazarus will rise. He doesn't say, thank you that you hear me. He says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, even though he's speaking at that time. He, is, he says that you have heard me to emphasize his confidence that the miracle will happen, that Lazarus will rise. The Father hears him because, as he says, the Father always hears him. But isn't that a perfectly ordinary thing, you might ask? I mean, God hears prayer, right? Well, no, not necessarily. Why should God, who is of two purer eyes than to look upon sin, hear sinners and indulge their petitions? He might say, oh, God is omniscient. God knows all things. Of course he hears everyone's prayers. Yeah, but he means hear in the sense of heed. There's no reason he should heed the prayers of sinners of the unrighteous, of his enemies. And so, Psalm 66, David says, If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Every sinner, in his or her sin, in unrepentance, cherishes sin. The Lord does not hear the unrighteous in this sense. So when we read in verse 41, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Jesus is saying that he is righteous. How do you know he's righteous? The Lord hears him and and Lazarus rises, then I'm righteous. Okay, so he's righteous. What does that prove? That proves he's nothing more than a prophet because there are other prophets who have done miracles. Right? What about the other miracle-working prophets like Moses and Elijah and Elisha? That, if God hears him, that only puts him on par with them. Jesus is saying that if the Father responds to his prayer, hears him, then he is at least like Moses, Elijah, and Elisha. He acts for God and he speaks like, for God. And so... What did God say at the baptism of Jesus? This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And then, hear him. I am pleased with him. He is not pleased with sin. He is not pleased with people in sin. He is pleased with those who are righteous. Jesus. God is pleased with Jesus. So he, we know he's righteous. And therefore, whatever he says is true. What about Elijah, Elisha, and Moses? But Elisha, 
who raised the widow's son from the dead, right? also a resurrection, did not say, as Jesus does in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. But Jesus, who raises Lazarus, is saying this. And what he says is true. And a risen Lazarus will show that Christ is therefore sent. He, he prays out loud. In verse 43, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out, so that they know he was sent to raise the dead, sent with power over sin and death. If he, so you know, if he can raise Lazarus, he can raise me from the dead. If he has power over sin and death comes from sin, he can also conquer my sin because he says he can. And he speaks for God because, look, there is Lazarus. The purpose of the miracle is not to save Lazarus's life. Lazarus will die again. The, mir- the miracle is for their faith. As Christ told his disciples when they first heard Lazarus was ill. In verse 14, Jesus said, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. Notice the emphasis on belief in the chapter, if you have it open before you. Verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? He says. Then verse 27, Yes, Lord, she told him, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. And then verse 40 in our passage here, I, uh, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? The miracle shows that belief is faith in Christ to save you from sin and death. It is common knowledge among preachers. Well, what do I know about preachers in general? I've always thought that it was common knowledge among preachers. (laughs) I don't get out much. Oh, they told us in seminary. And a great preacher told me, always be prepared to preach, pray, or die. And this is true of Christians in general in, in in another sense. Always be ready to give a defense of the hope that you have. If you see, if somebody comes across your path in need of the gospel, or somebody approaches you, or is in your company and challenges the truth of the gospel, you should have an answer. Every Christian is a bearer of God's word. Every Christian is a carrier. Remember that in the very early church in Jerusalem, when the persecution came and the believers were scattered from Jerusalem in a gospel pandemic, carrying it wherever they went. And pray always. Andrew of Crete, I think it was the 4th century, uh, in a a hymn, one of our hymns, he says, as I breathe, I pray. In particular, prayer, not worry or anger, is the Christian's response to any need. Always be prepared to pray. 
But what does it mean to be always ready to die? What else but to be at peace with it and to know God is wisely and lovingly in control of it at all times? There is always a day. The Lord knows that day. He has given that day, and that day is good. A Christian is marked by a particular relationship with life and death. You live the life that you do in the way that you do because of your unique relationship with death. If someone asks you, do you fear death? You adopt a puzzled look and you say, no. No, for you, death is defeated. Right? Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? You can say that. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, not even the evil of death itself. The end of your life is only the end of your pilgrimage, your days of service here. For you, as Paul said in Philippians 1, to live is Christ and to die is gain. There was a, uh, a man named John Rice, a southern evangelist in the fundamentalist tradition, preaching in a Texas town. And the town was a dry town, which meant that it was illegal to sell liquor. And in his preaching, he came down hard on liquor, not only for that reason, for other reasons. But because it was illegal, there were bootleggers to provide it for people who wanted it, uh, really wanted it. Uh, needless to say, the bootleggers were angry at his bad-for-business message. And so they sent him a cease-and-desist order in the form of a death threat, to which he sent back a response, you can't threaten me with heaven. And this has always impressed me as a thoroughly Christian response from the time I've heard it. Like the great martyr missionary to Ecuador, Jim Elliott, who stated most memorably, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jim Elliott had no fear of death. And so Jim Elliott lived freely for Christ and died at the hands of the people to whom he was witnessing. And left behind, by the way, a wife and, and, and little child. I read recently about King Hezekiah as I read through the scriptures. There's King Hezekiah. Oh, he's a good guy. Um, it's amazing what you forget. Uh, one, one reading to the next. And in 2 Kings 20, and he heard, he received message from God through the prophet Isaiah that his life was coming to an end and that he would surely die and so he should set his house in order. And he, and he on his bed, he turned to the wall and wept bitterly. I thought, why the tears? You're crying? God says this is the end of your life and you're weeping? This is no way for a, a Christian, uh, 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 one who hopes in the Lord, to be behaving. 
as if you were going to wander the earth forever, restlessly, like a hopeless shade. Now, you might have, you might have reason for not wanting to die right now. Right? Uh, I, 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 I heard that uh, my father-in-law, my wife's uh, father, was involved in it before I knew them. Was involved in a in a terrible car crash. It must have been a terrible uh, car wreck because he was in the wreck and feared that he would die. And he prayed to the Lord. He said, "Not to take him, not to take him right now." And he gave reasons because I've got four little girls at home and they need me. They need me to provide for them. They need me to raise them in the Lord. My wife needs my support. And the Lord spared him. But that's not what we hear from Hezekiah here. He doesn't say, as he could have said, Lord, Lord, your word is true and your will is good, but, but my, son, my son is still a fool, and, and he's not ready to rule. And, and for the sake of your people whom you love, give me greater length of days so that I may, with greater focus and with greater faith, raise my son and govern your people until they're ready. No, he just says, I don't want to die. Like this. This is no example to us. Folks, if I am still in this community when I am old and feeble and, let's say, laid low by a stroke, do not pray that the Lord would heal me and give me long days. Pray that I would die well and die as befits my faith. And with confidence, die with confidence in the word of Christ, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And you might say, aha, yeah, that's how you talk now in the bloom of your 60s. But on that day, you might not say the same thing. And you're right, I may not. And so I say, pray for me at that time, that I would die as I live faithful to the gospel. I know a brother somewhere who has told me that he has talked with his wife and encouraged her to, of course, she will be there on that, on that day, what is the last day or the, maybe the last day, to encourage him in the gospel as he faces that day. Yes, he may need encouragement. But one who is ready to die well is equipped also to live well, boldly, to live freely, to live brave in the battles of life. As your days, brothers and sisters, are given by God and are numbered by God, they are also valued by God and purposed by God. And so you young people, young people in particular, whether you're 10 or 15 or 21, or even 26. Mind this. Make your plans. God has given you your days, and he is sovereign over the, uh, the end of your days. And that end of your day, the, your days now are good, and the end of your days are good. And so make plans for your days. Pursue ambitions, kingdom ambitions. And make yourself useful to your king in the time he's given you. Your time is valuable. 
because it is God's time. He numbers your days, but he gives them for grand and royal purposes. Your, in, your efforts are meaningful if they are kingdom efforts. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, you are good and you are good to us. And you number our days. They have a number as the hairs of our head have a number. Father, we pray that we would be wise in counting our days, numbering our days, and cherishing them as days of service to you. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.